Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today. I am very pleased to be joined by Michael LaRosa, who is filling in for Jessica Burbank today. Michael, great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Amber. What's up first today? So we have former Trump economic advisor Peter Navarro, who was found guilty Thursday of contempt of Congress following a jury deliberation that lasted nearly five hours. Navarro faced two counts of contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with a subpoena served by the House Committee investigating the events of January 6. The first charge pertained to his failure to produce documents, and the second was for failing to appear for a deposition. Here's Navarro after the ruling. Let's watch. This is a landmark case. This is a landmark case that's bound for the Supreme Court. Why do I say that? <clears throat> this is the first time in the history of our republic that a senior White House advisor, an alter ego of the president, has ever been charged with the alleged crime. That's the first time that this has ever happened. Well, what do you think? Is this a worthwhile charge? Do you think that this was something that should have been pursued by the Department of Justice? Or is this a, well, a you know, I always thought it was weird that they were allowed to get away with defying congressional subpoenas. I mean, my God, if the Clinton White House had known they could defy uh, congressional subpoenas, um, it, it may have turned out differently with, with them, but they all complied. I mean, uh, I think it shows that you're not above the law, that even if you work in the White House and uh, Congress asks you or basically asks nicely, compels you, compels, and then compels you <laughs> to come testify, you do it. I mean, you are, you are held accountable to the taxpayers when you are a government employee. Um, so look, I think it's a, it's a valuable lesson, but again, he's not the first, I, I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's the first to be charged, but I mean, obviously Nixon's aides were charged with federal crimes. Um, I don't know what he's talking about. He's kind of a blowhard, if you ask me. He's come a long way from running for Congress as a Democrat in Northern California, that's for sure. Well, he was one of the architects of Trump's trade policy with China, so blowhard, I'm not so sure. But there's some context here that I think— I'm not saying he's not smart. I'm just saying. <laughs> sure. I, I think there's some context here that makes this seem to me like it was uh, more of a political process than it was actually trying to just hold somebody accountable for breaking the law. It's incredibly rare that the DOJ will actually pursue contempt of Congress charges. Mm -hmm. It's very rare that Congress will even refer them to the DOJ in the first place. There's a similar situation under the Obama administration where Eric Holder defied a subpoena and instead of trying to go after him criminally, what House Republicans did at that time was they sued him in civil court. Mm -hmm. So um, that case lasted seven years. He obviously was never facing any prison time. Peter Navarro might actually go to jail for several years. The sentencing is coming up in January. And the other issue I have with this is the entire January 6th committee was a total sham. It was a show trial. There were no Republican selections allowed on that committee. We had Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who already had their minds made up and were basically with the Democrats the entire time. The Republicans didn't have the same level of subpoena power. They didn't have the same investigatory power on that committee. This was a hand-picked committee by Nancy Pelosi. It was entirely politicized. So for them to turn around and say, if you don't comply with our completely partisan investigation, which is hardly a whole of Congress investigation, we're going to send you to prison is ridiculous. 
Well, I don't know where to begin with that, Amber. Um, a couple of things. First of all, um, Peter Navarro, whatever brilliance he may have when it comes to trade policy, was staff. Uh, Eric Holder was the attorney general of the United States, the chief law enforcement officer. So he's above the uh, law? He's above Peter Navarro, I'll, I'll tell you that mm. much. Maybe that's why they didn't charge him criminally and just civilly. Um, however, uh, again, when you're called to testify before Congress, and in this case, this was about um, a crime committed by the president, a high crime and misdemeanor that he was found guilty of—well, I'm sorry, he wasn't found guilty of—that he was impeached for, indicted for. Um, and um, to, to the point about the January 6th committee, I don't know how you can call it a sham. I mean, I think President Trump was even quite annoyed with the strategy that Republicans uh, deployed, which was to not provide any. They were certainly welcomed. Nancy Pelosi did not did not deny Republicans the chance to be on that committee. I think it was supposed to be ev like even. I think it was supposed to be evenly distributed. Uh, right, but she fact. had. She said and that she had was, veto power on every person had, the Republican she, chose. Well, she's the speaker. She right. certainly does have veto but, power. But but when you select members who don't believe that the crime occurred in the first place, then there's a problem. So you have to select, you have to select members um, who are going to join the committee, who agree with the intent of the committee, and that was to investigate a crime. And the members he chose just did not. But the members that they had he the, chose, they, wanted, they wanted to investigate portions of what happened on January 6th. They wanted to investigate the failure of security. The fact that Nancy Pelosi herself rejected having additional support from the National Guard or the D.C. police on that day, they wanted to investigate well, the entire response. She doesn't response. control the, the D.C. police or the federalizing the National Guard, and I believe it was up to the Secretary of Defense. And she was—you could see the video of her begging the Secretary of Defense on the day, uh, but the not day. prior to. Yes, prior well, to she rejected. I don't know if. Anybody in the world could have predicted what the FBI uh, did. Insurrection. The FBI did. They a, a they, they had they had actionable intel that there was going to be potential violence happening on that day. That came out in the course of the Republican investigation that was outside of the January sixth committee. And the Republican investigation. They had documents that came out that found that the FBI did, in fact, have actionable intel that they believed that there could be violence on that day. Well, of course, and Trump we, was aware of we, it, too. We knew and that's that. why he requested that, the that, National Guard to come in. So why did, we knew. So why did Nancy Pelosi not want the National Guard there? I don't know if that, if that she didn't want the National Guard there. All I know is when she asked for it, uh, she was, it, was, it was like pulling teeth to get them there. And it was after people had been killed. Who, who got killed on January 6th? I believe the woman in the Capitol. The, right, that was, uh -huh. yeah. And the man who died from a heart attack after after being uh, pounded with a— That's not uh, true. After being pounded with a flagpole. Um, and I believe there was a suicide as a result of it There afterwards. were police officers who passed away after January 6th. No police officers died on that day. No, there was one that died on that That's day. That's not I true. I forget his name, but he was honored at the Capitol. It's not true. He didn't die on that day. He didn't die as a result of that day. Uh, the only person Officer who, Sisnick? Officer Sisnick had a stroke two right. days later. Right, right. And uh, there's no— there's But he no, was beaten up pretty badly. But there's no We don't credible, know if he would have had the stroke if he wasn't beaten with a flagpole. Well, there's no evidence that his injuries sustained on that day had mm. anything to do with his well, stroke. I, his family says the medical, otherwise. His well, family the, and the Capitol Police— Well, the medical police, records don't lie. His family and the Capitol Police say otherwise. 
medical records don't lie. But let's get back to this question of Peter Navarro, because one of the other issues with this case, in my opinion, is the fact that Peter Navarro said that he was under executive privilege, which is the same exact claim that was made by Mark Meadows and other senior Trump officials. And they were not charged with contempt of Congress. And yet the judge rejected his ability to make that argument in court. And their reasoning was that Peter Navarro, uh, sort of similar to what you said about Eric Holder, apparently wasn't high enough up in the administration yes. to credibly be well, under executive privilege. Welcome to government. The chief, the chief of staff has an armed guard outside his door. He has security. Um, the chief of staff has a security clearance that Peter Navarro, no offense to his intelligence, did not have. A very different, very but different lines of work. But the security clearance is separate from the question of executive privilege. No, Peter Navarro was incredibly what I'm doing is he providing you like, it, uh, supporting evidence as to why a chief of staff in a White House is um, of a different level of seniority than um, oh, I and, and, and I privilege. I understand that, and but in the, in, the Trump, in the Trump administration, Peter Navarro was incredibly close to the president. That's okay. And did I'm have I'm, I'm, I was incredibly close to Jill Biden. I didn't have a security clearance as high as the chief of staff. But there's a potential that you would be protected under executive privilege if you're someone who has one-on-one -on -one meetings in the Oval Office with the president mm. on routine occasion. Mm. And they wouldn't even allow him to make that argument in court. Just because like it, we're debating right now, he wasn't even allowed to bring ridiculous. it up. I don't think staff. it's ridiculous at all. He's staff. He is a senior official. And and there's he, nothing new about uh, the White House chief of staff having executive privilege and uh, other members of the White House staff do not. That's just they, the way it goes. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even look into whether or not he had executive privilege, they could have made a call to the president. They could have asked anybody in the administration. And instead, they said flat out, no, you're not allowed to bring this into court. Good for them. Good for them? Yes. All right. Well, <laughs> I'd like to hear what he has to say. All right. So uh, if you're the attorney general under the Obama administration, then you don't uh, get to be held in contempt of Congress. But if you're Peter Navarro, you do. Well, I, OK, well, we should be clear. Uh, whenever Eric Holder was asked to testify before Congress, which he did routinely, I think once every couple of weeks, um, as a result of being a cabinet member, uh, it's not like he escaped or was hiding anything. Hmm, interesting. I think the Fast and Furious scandal would disagree, but we're gonna have to leave it there. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Republicans in the Senate are at odds with their colleagues in the House. Threats of a government shutdown from House conservatives are getting a chilly reception from those in the Senate. This as they try to temper expectations for what GOP priorities they can achieve amid a looming deadline. The House has just 11 days left to pass a stopgap measure to prevent a shutdown. But some hardline conservatives have been embracing the possibility as they look to turn up the pressure on spending discussions despite when they were in power, adding $7.8 trillion to the deficit. Here's top Senate leaders, Republican Mitch McConnell and Democrat Chuck Schumer on the matter. Let's watch. This month, of course, <clears throat> Congress needs to address our nation's most pressing needs with timely appropriations, and we need to keep the lights on from October 1st. But there is one clear place to begin. Keep the government open. As we all know, government funding is set to expire on September 30th. By the end of this month, the House and Senate, Democrats and Republicans, all must get on the same page about keeping the government open and avoiding a pointless shutdown. 
a shutdown that will hurt just about every single American. Here with us to discuss is The Hill's congressional reporter, Michael Schnell. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So I'm actually, I'm not surprised that this issue is popping up again. This was something that was brought up quite a bit in that first GOP primary debate. A lot of people on that stage talking about the national debt. There's definitely an appetite among Republicans to try to cut spending. With this particular set of negotiations, what is it that the Republicans on the House side, um, the conservatives rather, on the House side are asking for? Yeah, look, essentially, Amber, since the beginning of when we started talking about this appropriations process, these conservatives, particularly ones in the House Freedom Caucus, have been pushing for spending levels to be brought back to pre-COVID levels. It's a 1.47 trillion number that they have been floating around since the beginning of this process. And so in terms of that, you know, there was in the debt limit deal struck in the debt limit deal struck um, earlier this year, uh, there were spending caps that were placed in that bill that would essentially set fiscal spending for the next set spending levels for the next fiscal year. Uh, so the Senate went ahead and marked up its bills in line with that debt limit deal. The only problem is the House, in an effort to appease those conservative demands, went at far lower levels. And look, now we see conservatives continuing to push for more spending cuts and for lower spending levels. And it's a real problem up here on Capitol Hill because there's no consensus. And of course, that September 30th deadline is fast approaching. So what is the Senate GOP hesitation here? Is it just the political unpopularity of a shutdown? Well, look, I think that nobody loves the idea of a shutdown, right? Uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski, she spoke about how crab fishermen had to start their season late uh, back uh, four years ago when there was that month-long government shutdown. It's not an ideal situation. But on the other side of the coin, House conservatives see that this as sort of a leverage point, you know, uh, funding has to be passed by the end of the fiscal year or else there is this risk of a shutdown, of course. So conservatives see that as a leverage point for them that because this is essentially a must-pass measure, they can use it to their advantage by pushing for these policy concessions, grandstand, and have a larger chance of actually getting these concessions from leadership and from Democrats. But look, on the Senate side, uh, lawmakers essentially just want to get a stopgap funding bill over the finish line, keep the government open, and then continue with this appropriations process ahead of that kick down deadline. Because, there, you know, there, there's there's sort of this, this uh, on January 1st, if all 12 appropriation bills are not passed, in the debt limit bill, there was written in a 1% cut across the board. So if all 12 appropriations bills are not passed by January 1st, then there'll be a 1% cut across the board. Uh, lawmakers are using that as a threat to get their act together and get the job done before then. But look, there's a lot to do you know, throughout the next few months. Hey, Michael. Um, you know, as a Democrat, this is sort of like the problem um, that we had with negotiating a debt ceiling deal at all. Uh, the debt ceiling isn't a budget negotiating tool. It's, you know, it's, it's a credit card that you pay off, right? Um, this is where you have those discussions. Now, it seems like uh, our point in, uh, what was it, last spring, when we were negotiating spending, was that in 2011, when we negotiated a debt ceiling deal over spending, Republicans went back on their word and they blew through the caps when they got a Republican president and had no problem breaking the deals. So is it, are they breaking another, are, are they trying to break another deal and blow through the caps that they agreed to set in place last spring? 
Well, look, the fact of the matter is, is that those caps that were set in the debt limit deal, that was a, the, the, that was a product of a negotiation between Speaker McCarthy and between President Biden. But now, so, so in a way, so it, it, your question is a bit complicated because some members of the Freedom Caucus, there were a handful of members actually, who did not support that debt limit deal. So essentially they didn't agree to it. But then when you talk about subcommittee chairs marking up bills at levels that are lower than the caps there, McCarthy giving the blessing to mark up the levels below the caps, definitionally speaking, yes, they are not going in line with that deal that was struck. But of course, I mean, you know, that was uh, whether or not you take it, if sometimes politics reigns supreme here, and I don't think that there's any expectation that the the the, the, the bills at the lower levels are going to be the ones that are signed into law. This is all part of the process, right? For example, it's similar to what we saw with the debt limit. You saw House Republicans pass a very, very, very conservative bill, the Limit Save Grow Act. And then you saw the uh, that was a negotiating tactic to give say this is everything that we want and then try to get something closer to that. So I think that we may be seeing a similar negotiating tactic now with the House passing bills of everything they hope to see. The Senate will do their own thing, and then they'll see both chambers conference and come to some sort of consensus. But look, they want to put forward their wish list. So I think that's what essentially what we're seeing happen right now. I saw some of the House Republicans also arguing on their social media accounts that the government shutdown isn't that big of a deal because the government shut down various uh, parts of American society during COVID, whether it was the economy or churches or or other uh, other you know civic institutions. How is that argument resonating? Are they convincing anyone uh, else in the caucus? Are they convincing the public? Um, I, I just haven't heard that argument yet in regards to uh, government shutdown down and, and its popularity. Yeah, look, the lawmakers were pushing, uh, rather not pushing, but flirting with this idea of a government shutdown, saying that they would be content with the government shutdown. It's a very small minority in the House Republican conference. Even Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said that the government is not going to shut down. Nobody wants to see this. It's a small number of, you know, uh, of, of lawmakers, conservatives, really hardline conservatives, some of whom are in the House Freedom Caucus, people like Bob Good, someone like Ralph Norman. I spoke to Norman on the phone last month, and he told me that if a shutdown means that we will stop the country from continuing on its current spending trajectory, he said, so be it, right? So the people who are okay with a potential shutdown, it's definitely not the majority of the party. Like I said, it's a very minority group of the party. And that's why I think that it wasn't so surprising that we see Senate geo uh, law Republican senators throwing cold water on this and saying that they, you know, they don't like like that, uh, that theory, because even someone like Kevin McCarthy would say the same thing, because he is pushing to keep the government open. He has said that he wants to see a continuing resolution pass at the end of the month. So to answer your question, you know, the people who are pushing for a shutdown or would be content with a shutdown, it's a very small minority in the House Republican conference. And that idea isn't picking up wide Steve yet. Well, it's also just rich coming from Republicans who added $8 trillion to the, the national debt when they had power and when President Trump was in office. Um, but, Michael, I wanted to ask you where we stand so far on adding a Ukraine supplemental to the spending package. Yeah, look, this is going to be a really, really big question when the House reconvenes next week. So essentially, just for some context, the White House last month unveiled a $40 billion supplemental request. $24 billion included in that request was for aid for Ukraine. And of course, as we've seen over the past few months, 
there's a handful of House Republicans who are apprehensive to continue supporting Ukraine as it battles against Russia. You know, there this this has been a growing movement within the House Republican Conference, and there were some amendment votes to the NDAA in the spring uh, over the summer that were voted on, and about 70 House Republicans actually voted to cut off aid for Ukraine. So again, it's still a minority within the conference, but it's a noticeable group. So when you talk about this supplemental, uh, the, the White House unveiled the supplemental, assuming that it would be attached to a continuing resolution at the end of the month. Um, but it doesn't seem like the entire supplemental is going to get in there. Uh, senators, both Republicans and Democrats, they want to see the full supplemental, which also includes disaster relief, which is important amid you know wildfires this uh, this summer, hurricanes this summer. Uh, the su- senators want to see the full supplemental on the continuing resolution. But again, you have those House Republicans who will not be okay with aiding, sending more aid to Ukraine. So there was some reporting yesterday, Punchbowl News, Bloomberg reported that McCarthy's considering attaching disaster funding to the continuing resolution and then potentially dealing with the matter of Ukraine funding later on and potentially coupling that with some border security provisions. Uh, Whether or not that would fly with House Republicans remains to be seen. It's going to be a question we ask all of them come next week when they come back to Washington. But in terms of the status of that Ukraine money, it's still up in the air because it's such a controversial topic within the House. You know, it's controversial within the House GOP conference, and then there are stark differences when you compare the House to the Senate. So that's still up in the air, but no doubt it'll be a big topic of conversation uh, this month. So definitely, especially as we see American support for aid to Ukraine sort of waning as well. Michael Schnell, congressional reporter for The Hill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. The Biden administration is reportedly considering forcing some migrant families who enter the United States without authorization to remain near the border in Texas while awaiting asylum screening. That's according to the L.A. Times. New York City Mayor Eric Adams recently weighed in on the influx of migrants into the United States and New York City. Full support. And let me tell you something, New Yorkers. Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. We're getting 10,000 migrants a month. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, a, a great man on the bench of the Democratic Party, likely to run for president someday, um, said that the state does not have the capacity to handle influx of migrants from New York City, as the Biden administration considers the Atlantic City International Airport for migrant housing. He said yesterday, I don't see any scenario where we're going to be able to take in a program, take a program in Atlantic City or, frankly, elsewhere in the state. Also on the border issue, a federal judge in Austin has ordered Texas to remove river barriers that the state assembled along a portion of the U.S.-Mexico border to repel migrants, given the Biden administration a win in its lawsuit against the barriers approved by Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Joining us now to discuss is Hill staff writer Raphael Bernal. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. 
So let's go ahead and start with this question of potentially placing these asylum seekers back in Texas and other border states. There's um, been a lot of consternation from, uh, from big city mayors like Eric Adams about the fact that migrants have been, been bused around the country, sort of shifting that burden away from the border states. So how are governors like Greg Abbott reacting to this news now that they're going to have to be responsible again for the vast majority of these illegal immigrants? Well, it's still unconfirmed uh, that, that this will happen, but it is very believable. Uh, this was written by Hamed Al-Aziz, who's a uh, living legend among immigration reporters, so very believable. It's it's exactly the opposite of what Greg Abbott wants. Greg Abbott wants wants to be able to move migrants, uh, sort of to weaponize migrants against big cities, but it, it might be it it might actually end up helping him politically because he'll get to complain more about this issue that he's been using. Whatever his, his uh, logistical positions are on immigration, he's been very effectively using it politically to uh, raise his, his, national, his national image. Raphael, um, Mayor Adams, his rhetoric was uh, unusually, you know, highly sort of inflammatory. Um, and alarming um, about the city's capacity and capability um, to take on uh, caring for these these migrants. There are about, like, I think, I believe, six members of Congress in New York City that—or um, that represent New York City and some, uh, some part of it. Has he—is he working with those members of Congress who represent New York City uh, on the Hill to kind of figure out a congressional or federal um, solution. If not him, can they push the administration um, to do something to help uh, with the the effort going on in New York City? So Democrats and immigration advocates are absolutely biting their lip, lips to not criticize Eric Adams. They don't want this to become a friendly fire. They don't want to divide the Democratic Party. But the fact is, if any Republican had said half of what Eric Adams said, you'd see press releases all over calling it dog whistles, saying, you know, this this man is inciting uh, racial violence. Now, they are worried, you know, the, the, the advocates and some Democrats are worried that that this sort of rhetoric can translate into into violent acts, as we've seen, you know, we, we have seen uh, too many, obviously, ethnically and racially motivated um, shootings. Um, so, they, so they they really don't know what to do with Eric Adams. They're giving him the benefit of the doubt when he says it or that will destroy New York City. He means the lack of funding and not the migrants themselves. Um, he, if that is the case, his phrasing has been absolutely terrible. If, if that's the message that he wants to convey, there is there is a sense of massive frustration. They do have a budget issue. Um, but I, I just talked to Congressman Adriano Spayat from from New York. And one of the points he made to me is in in 19 around 1907, Ellis Island was 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 processing more than a million people into New York every you know every year. Um, when when New York now complains about ten thousand or a hundred thousand, being that you know we are much a much more advanced society presumably than we were in nineteen oh seven, our capa our capacity to absorb people should be a, a lot bigger. 
the big frustration, something that everybody shares, Eric Adams, uh, Governor Hochul, is 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 the delay and the difficulty in getting these people work permits because the, there is there's a job market that can absorb a lot of people right now mm -hmm. and for whatever reason whether it's red tape whether it's they're not eligible whether there's rules for them to wait but there's a lot of people who could be working who are instead sitting in shelters yeah and my my own family yeah my italian uh ancestor or uh, relatives came through Ellis Island around 1908, actually. Um, what is the White House response to Mayor Adams' rhetoric? I mean, Adams is considered politically a sort of a rising star, future star of the Democratic Party, even talked about in some circles as a uh, future presidential um, candidate, uh, perhaps a keynote at the Democratic convention, something like that. Uh, is there any um, response, either on background or on the record about about what he's been about what he's saying well he's burned his bridges with this white house let's remember mm -hmm. he he was going to be a biden surrogate in this campaign and when he started this months ago started this sort of rhetoric he was sort of unceremoniously dropped uh, as a as a surrogate but there wasn't a statement saying he said this so we dropped him the white house has been very quiet I think the strongest message they gave was in receiving a Governor Hochul, um, I believe it was last week, um, and and giving and telling her we will work on you for these work permits. We we want to work with you. Sort of giving Hochul like you you make it you make it cooperative. So you know we 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 will work with you. Um, Adams makes it combative. Uh, so there there is that bigger separation. And and if Adams indeed has presidential aspirations, like this video is going to come back to haunt him, because it, it it is it is the kind of content that a lot of immigrant communities, and not just Hispanic immigrant communities, he even mentioned West African communities. That this you know in, in a democratic primary, I can I can absolutely see how this video would be spliced into attack ads. So is the Democratic response to Mayor Eric Adams essentially, we don't like his rhetoric, he's not being helpful to the party, or is there any sense or self-awareness on their behalf that maybe sending 10,000 migrants to New York City a month actually isn't sustainable? And has the Biden administration expressed any, willing, any willingness to not just accommodate migrants when they come, but actually stem the flow of them coming across the border in the first place. Well, they, they would love to stem the flow, but no, like it's been decades of decades, and nobody's sort of figured out that equation. Um, migrant flows happen very much despite U.S. policy, um, and and I mean, as for as for Mayor Adams, I mean, he's he's just he. He's just—he's putting himself in a position where he's saying that New York City can't do something. That is not very popular with with a lot of New Yorkers. But he is, which which ends up being divisive because, of course, that that rhetoric of, of fear of like this is going to, as he said, destroy us. That will resonate with some. Uh, talking to to Espayet earlier, he, his view and and a lot of migrants are are going to his neighborhood up in up in Washington Heights where where they speak Spanish. So a lot of Spanish speakers sort of gravitate in in that direction. His view is that if with the right funding and with the right programs, 
that this group can be absorbed, uh, you know, probably more easily than than the than the millions of people were absorbed from the you know 1890s to the 1920s. And I, one last thing I just wanted to say is, if these are um, asylum seekers, or is that is that my understanding that most of these are families who have sought asylum and are waiting for adjudication, uh, Raphael? That is incredibly complicated, and it, it is part of the question. The solution is not going to be one big thing. There are asylum seekers. There are parolees. There are people in the, in the program for Haiti, Cuba, Nicaragua, and um, and Venezuela. Um, you know, they, there are all sorts of different statuses. Some are stronger. Some are weaker. Some some have a really weak uh, asylum claim, frankly, and and will most likely end up being deportable if not actually deported. Mm -hmm. um, but each of these groups has to go through a different path of red tape to get their their work permits. And some of them, for some of them, it, it's even easy. Like they already are eligible for work permits, but they don't know it because the people around them aren't eligible for work permits. So it is it is incredibly complicated. And that's that's part of what what a lot of advocates want the administration to fix is just is just work on this that 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 is purely executive. You don't need Congress. Make it easier. Whatever you need to do, just don't have people sitting around in in shelters if they don't need to be. And of course, we have the other complicating factor that there's a huge backup in the immigration court system as well. Rafael, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Pleasure. In the latest on his administration's efforts to fight climate change, President Joe Biden wrote in a statement yesterday that my administration is canceling all remaining remaining oil and gas leases issued under the last administration in the Arctic refuge and proposing to protect 13 million acres in the Western Arctic. There's more to do, but we're talking, we're taking action to meet the moment for the future generations. While Joe Biden touted these climate initiatives, former President Donald Trump wrote, Joe Biden's electric vehicle mandate will murder the U.S. auto industry and kill countless union auto worker jobs forever. There is no such thing as a fair transition to the destruction of these workers' livelihoods and the obliteration of this cherished American industry. The Biden administration announced last week that it intends to invest in American auto manufacturing jobs to help workers keep their jobs, quote, as the car industry transforms for future generations. We can't forget when Joe Biden drove cars at the Detroit Auto Show last year and announced $7.5 billion for electric vehicle charging stations. I signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act. It gives tax credits to new electric vehicles, fuel cell vehicles, made in America. And for the first time, you get a tax credit if you buy a used electric vehicle. That's all coming. And part of the infrastructure law, we're investing $7.5 billion to build electric vehicle charging stations all across America. Washington. 
Electric vehicles are increasingly becoming a rental car option. Many drivers have reportedly weird feelings when driving them. One user said that the battery drained quickly, and she added, I don't, bl I don't plan for random stops in weird places. And another said that just getting out of the garage, it felt like I was learning to drive all over again, according to the Wall Street Journal. Well. Have you ever driven an electric car? I have not. I haven't either, actually. My, my, my automobile is half, but that wasn't in A hybrid? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, 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 yes. But that wasn't for anything other than I liked the car. I'm not exactly, <laughs> I'm not somebody who will uh, drive or not drive cars as a result of electronic. Fair enough. I, I'm very pro gas car. I have a lot of issues with the, the big EV push. I don't fault anybody who wants to drive one, Yeah. but clearly our power grid is not ready for this. We definitely don't have enough charging stations. I actually really sympathize with that woman in the Wall Street <laughs> Journal article because I used to live in Crystal City in Arlington, and that was one of the hotspots for the rise in carjackings during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And the only gas station within a few mile radius was this Exxon that was right off of Route 1. Mm -hmm. And that was the spot where the carjackers would go because they could immediately get on the highway and get out of state where it would be harder to catch them. So I had to drive so far out of my way to go to what I considered a safe gas station. <laughs> so the idea that I would be driving an electric vehicle on a road trip and, and have to go to some you know sketchy place just because it had yeah. an electric charger would make me so nervous. Well, <clears throat> so I guess the, how I feel about it is if it's creating jobs, if it's, if it's incentivizing um, job creators to kind of forge this blue-green alliance where you have labor and um, sort of the, the environmental community working together to create more American jobs. I, I think it's fine. And um, the way they, the, our administration, well, President Biden's administration did it in, through the IRA was to add incentives if you were to buy American electric uh, vehicles um, and American uh, electric, uh, rent, uh, used rental vehicle, or I'm sorry, used, used EVs. Mm -hmm. Um, so as long as they were American made, uh, people can basically get a tax credit. And I find that that's incentivizing. I think that's a good thing. It's also, you know, I think younger generations are very, um, activated by this issue. I think on both sides, I, I, I can't say it's, a, it's a huge passion of mine that I get politically activated about myself. However, it is, I think, uh, an issue that resonates very much with young people, um, especially in the Democratic, on the Democratic side. So I think it's good for Biden uh, politically to keep pushing things, the incentives he was pushing, like in the IRA uh, for EVs. Um, and look, it keeps labor relevant because they're an essential constituency of the Democratic Party. Um, and as we transform as a country, as technology advances, labor, uh, you know, will start to get squeezed out. And I think this is a good way uh, to say, look, um, climate, climate change and uh, green jobs are labor jobs. I appreciate the fact that Biden did include that Made in America stipulation. I'm very much pro keeping manufacturing in the U.S. and mm. reshoring a lot of our supply <clears> chains. <throat> we saw the it's very the, Trumpian. Well, America first. Right? I'm America first. We saw the drastic consequences of not having our supply chains in America when we couldn't get PPE during the pandemic, mm -hmm. and in the aftermath of the pandemic, basic goods were caught up in these uh, shipping containers off of the coast. But I would say that I don't think the EV industry is the 
best one to keep these manufacturing jobs and these auto worker jobs. I think Biden's massive spending and his massive payoffs to the union industry are basically an admission that this EV push will cost more jobs than it creates. Otherwise, he wouldn't be having to spend billions of dollars in order to help protect these jobs. And it was even a huge sticking point for the United Auto Workers Union yeah. that they didn't necessarily want to support Biden because of his insistence on pushing these electric vehicle subsidies and mandates. And that, yes, to an extent, they, they were very much in support of their own congressman, uh, Dan Kildee uh, from, Met, from Michigan. Uh, they were very much in support of that House bill version of the EV legislation, um, and the tax, those tax incentives did make it into the IRA. They were not a fan of sort of the Senate version, which uh, adopted uh, Senator Manchin's changes. But I will say that Biden has uh, been an equal opportunity offender here. I mean, he has, uh, in his first year alone, he um, approved more drilling leases than Donald Trump did in his first year. Um, and he approved the Conoco uh, pipeline project, which was a multi-billion dollar project. Uh, I think he's been pretty pragmatic when it comes to um, environmental legislation um, and really straddling the divide there. Uh, but I don't know. Tell me how you feel about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, going back to this idea about, you know, protecting union jobs, um, these electric vehicles uh, require 30 percent fewer workers to manufacture mm -hmm. as a gas powered vehicle. So that's an mm -hmm. inherent problem with this as well. And even when you spend tons of money trying to uh, basically transfer workers to new industries or new skill sets, um, there's necessarily going to be a gap in workers that get left behind. Sure. I mean, we see this in the fossil fuel industry as well. Mm -hmm. And one of my other big problems with the EV push is that these electric vehicles don't really seem to have a huge positive effect on the environment. A lot of them uh, emit just as many, uh, just as much CO2 as a gas-powered vehicle, and that's primarily due to the mining of the materials. It, it takes to create these batteries, right? The mining that's going on in incredibly dirty industries in Africa. A lot of those mines are controlled by China, so there's the national security issue inherent in this. Mm -hmm. um, and then the fact that we saw this video from, I believe it was the CEO of, uh, of, of GM. Mm -hmm. And she said, was asked, you know, how these uh, electric vehicle chargers are actually powered. And it turns out the chargers themselves are powered by fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So this is not, you know, like yeah. a magical solution no. to the climate. Mm -hmm. sure. And so to dump billions of dollars into mm -hmm. that industry and, and say, I'm fixing climate change as yeah. I, I don't think a, but a there very is good a, plan. There, I mean, it is part of a larger discussion about how as the, and, and it goes back to sort of the free trade argument. Argument, right, with NAFTA, CAFTA, um, the uh, uh, Pacific, uh, I'm sorry, the Pacific Rim deal. The TPP. I'm sorry, the TPP. Yeah. Uh, that President Obama and Paul Ryan worked together to pass TPA. Um, that, it, it was putting, it was bringing together a coalition of of what the Republican Party used to be, which was about free trade and progress uh, and opening up markets to, to business uh, and competing against China. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting to see how um, Democrats are sort of are evolving um, to more, I would say, free, like, as Obama did as president, more free trade 
uh, party and Republicans are sort of reversing themselves in a lot of Becoming ways. Becoming more protectionist. Yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. I think there was a recognition that a lot of those free trade principles, particularly opening up trade with China, didn't you know, democratize China. It just mm -hmm. gave them a ton of economic power while still remaining this very oppressive country in terms of human rights. But it allowed it wait. allowed us to compete in the region to rein some of their power in. Ooh, it's better that we're there than, than not being there. I don't know. At this point, with uh, how much China has gained in terms of geopolitical power, I, I, I'm not sure I buy that. But I hear your arguments. Point well taken. More maybe rising a, after maybe this. Ivanka should get her dresses from somewhere else then. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't, <laughs> li I don't like buying products in China either. We'll be back with more rising after this. Vice President Kamala Harris says she is ready to serve as commander-in-chief if necessary, though she brushed off concerns about President Biden's age as the pair campaigns for a second term. Here's The Veep herself on with CBS News' Margaret Brennan. Let's watch. You're 58 now. If you win a second term, as you and the president are running to do, he would be 86 at the end of it. The Wall Street Journal had a poll showing two-thirds of Democrats say Joe Biden is too old to run again. Are you prepared to be commander-in-chief? Yes, I am, if necessary. But Joe Biden is going to be fine. And let me tell you something. I work with Joe Biden every day. The work that, under Joe Biden's leadership, our administration has accomplished is transformative. I think the American people, most of all, want a leader who actually gets things done. All right. So, Michael, you did comms for the first lady, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What did you think of her answer? Do you think it would have been maybe better if she had led with Joe Biden is, you know, in great health, we have nothing to worry about, as opposed to, yes, I am ready to take over? No, I thought it was fine. I think okay. that, um, first of all, she answered the question, which very is— Very rare for her. Very rare for a lot of politicians, <laughs> in which I, I, I think that there is underestimated value in. People love to spin and pivot, and, and, and I think viewers can see through, through that, and it's, it, it, it comes off as a little disingenuous, but she was really good. She, she answered the question directly. She, she is ready to be president on day one. That's why he picked her in the first place. And, um, you know, and she's right. Look, I left, I was with the Bidens for three years between the campaign and the White House. And, uh, you know, I traveled with them for three years in their traveling bubble. And I, I can't tell you, like, I was ready for a break. Like, I don't know how the man does it, but he exercises every day. He ride, he rides bikes. He occasionally works out with his wife uh, and does Pilates. A lot of vacation that, time, 40 percent of his presidency. Uh, he's not he's not golfing every weekend uh, like, like the former one. But um, he did, they do go home to Delaware and that's not vacation. That's where they live. But I will say uh, the man is extremely active. I've never seen Donald Trump ride a bike or do Pilates. Um, I don't think anyone wants to see that, to be fair. <laughs> maybe not. Uh, but no, I thought her answer was great. And I, I, I'd be, if I were the way else, I'd be very, very pleased with it. And, and she's right. Um, the president is, is very healthy. He's very fit. There's, I, I think the age stuff is a bit overblown. Um, but look, Democrats knew what they were getting when they voted for him in the primary, and uh, independents knew what they were getting when they voted for him in the general. 
Well, I will give Kamala this. It's not the worst answer I've ever heard from her. <laughs> I agree. She did directly answer yeah. the question, which is a first. She didn't give one of her normal circular logic word salads that we sometimes hear about yellow school buses mm. and and the time of the moment and the moment is now and et cetera, et cetera. But I will say this. The GOP just saw that and they breathed a huge sigh of relief. If not, we're throwing confetti in the air because mm -hmm. that's a campaign ad for them. Because Kamala is not popular with the American people. She's less popular than Joe Biden somehow, <clears throat> even though she's not a very forward-facing vice president. And so for her to say publicly, yes, I'm prepared to be president, they're going to cut that and they're going to put that all over the airwaves because they want to make the case Joe Biden maybe works out a lot. Um, I think a lot of people have questions about his cognitive ability at this point, based on the numerous gaffes that he's made, based on the fact that he leaves events early without oh knowing where he's God. going. He's at FEMA. He's wandering around. His the, handlers the, have to show the, him where to go. The guy's been making gaffes his entire life. That's, what, that's what's great about Joe Biden. I think people see that this is different, What though. you see is what you get with Joe Biden. That's why people love him, and he's endearing, because he is who he is, and he doesn't pretend to be anybody else. I think it was endearing when he still seemed to know what was going on, but now when you <laughs> You see someone who doesn't know where he is half the time uh, and is not able to make it through a basic speech. I don't think that's, that's fair. scary. That's I, actually scary. And he's the commander in chief. I, I presume you feel the same way about Mitch McConnell. I actually do. I've Good. said it on this show. Good. Excellent. <laughs> um, no, but going back to your point, look, uh, the vice president is, she's been a, an extremely, uh, she transitioned as a very seemly, seamless number two, uh, a really good partner for the president, and that's why he picked her. And look, she's talented. Uh, At what? She's talented. <laughs> you don't get to be, let, let's put it this way, she's the first woman vice president What does that mean? No. Well, you don't, you don't get to Who be cares? district attorney of a major city, uh, attorney general of the biggest state with the world's one of the world's largest economies, and become a U.S. senator and become vice president of the United States if you don't have natural talent. She has natural talent, and I think the secret's out of the bag for the Republicans. What I just want to I just want to let them know have to the, do with it, the American people know Kamala Harris is vice president. They know she she can inherit the office. I don't think it's a big secret. So I don't know what about that interview would make a compelling ad other than reminding their base that they don't like Kamala Harris. Well, it's not a secret, but I mean, you know, as well as I do in political communications, that hammering a message over and over again does serve to. Sure. But people are voting it, for the top, not, not, I, not the bottom. I want to go back, though, to your statement that sure. she is the first woman. Is woman a qualification now? No, but I'm saying I'm saying there's so why a, does it matter? there are a lot of women out there right. who are talented and uh, more competent than most men. She's the one that became vice president of the United States. She's the one. Uh, out of all the women out there, she broke that, the barrier. Unfortunately, I think that is doesn't speak well to women, <laughs> in my opinion. Why not? She hasn't had a single accomplishment as vice president. She's vice president. That's real. What, you, what are you supposed to accomplish as vice president, by the way? Well, she was put in charge of, to, of the your, border. Your she job, was put well, in charge of getting on. the voting rights bill your job, passed. Your job, is to, your job as vice president is to be the best number two you can be. Your job is not to get out ahead of the president. You're not, your job is not to get more press than the president. No, of course not. Um, but Biden did give her specific tasks that she was supposed to be in charge uh, of. The, the, the vice president takes on and asks for roles. The president doesn't assign her anything. She's not a student. But uh, to your point about what she was uh, 
doing. I think there's a lot of confusion about this border thing. She wasn't assigned or tasked to be the border czar and make the border safe. That is not—and maybe it was a messaging failure on the part of uh, her team or the White House, but that was not her responsibility. Her responsibility was trying to figure out the root cause of why uh, I love people that you are fleeing. Cause. That was her. People her are fleeing. Phrase. Well, I mean, it's true. Who who is at the border? They're coming from Central America and South America. It's true. That is the root, and the root cause is lack of opportunity, crime, uh, political persecution. That is what she was trying to help resolve, and that is what we, we are as a. Uh, nation, a member of the Summit of the Americas, are trying to resolve. That's why we we partner and we go down to places like Ecuador and, and um, uh, Costa Rica and Panama because those places are investing in education. They are investing in their people and trying to keep opportunities there. And that is what the vice president was was assigned to do. Had nothing really to do with the border. I don't know why it got messed up the message on that, but. Uh, messaging failure, maybe, on our part. Who knows? But uh, it got totally blown out of a proportion and completely out of context. I suspect part of the, um, the, the perceived failure was that under Biden, you have record numbers of illegal aliens crossing the southern border, the highest number in a given month under the Trump administration, in which it was deemed a crisis, was in the spring of 2019, when you saw just about 100,000 migrants come across in one month. Mm -hmm. As soon as Biden took office, the numbers skyrocketed. <clears throat> We've been seeing 200,000, 250,000 a month. So when you are uh, in response to those numbers saying the vice president is going to work on the border. That's, again, that wasn't her role, to work on the border. <laughs> we have a border patrol that works on the border. Well, of course, her job but you can support was them. much more you can go substantively policy-related, and the policy was about the root cause of immigration coming from the, the, the triangle, the Central American countries and South American countries, people fleeing poverty, violence, political persecution, um, joblessness. So what has been the policy change that she's enacted in response to those Vice presidents though? don't enact I know, anything. but they, they propose, they, they make encourage. recommendations to the president. So what were her recommendations? I don't know. If she's, more I don't think she's done with the job. <laughs> you don't think she's done yet? Well, no. I, I, I mean, I think uh, on a basic level, if if you're going to address issues related to migration, sure. you have to address both both push and pull factors. Sure. Mm -hmm. And the Biden administration has basically but, increased all of the can, pull factors. Can we can we agree that? Uh, well, first of all. President Trump, under in his last year, had more illegal border crossings than President Obama did in his last year, according to Pew Research. Now, can we agree that the border is a bipartisan problem and has been a problem under presidents Republican and Democrat, that this crisis did not start on January 21st of 2021, or January no, 20th of 2021. I agree with you. The border is the, not a bipartisan—it's a, a bipartisan issue. It's an American issue. What has changed, though, is the compassion that the Republican Party used to have about this issue uh, under people like George W. Bush, Rick Perry, and certainly the king of amnesty himself, Ronald Reagan. I don't think it's compassionate to encourage people to make a deadly, dangerous trek paying coyotes who don't give a damn about them, so they roast in the back of tractor trailers Think about that, how Texas. desperate they are to have a life free of, free of that. 
that doesn't mean that we owe them our resources no. and our jobs, right? But there's only so many things in the world we can't do. It's a very big country. We have a lot of space. We have a lot of diversity. It's okay to be compassionate and sensitive to people who have really terrible lives and all they want to do is improve I, them. I think people have empathy for the migrants, but what That's they're great. saying is that you shouldn't you shouldn't encourage them to put themselselves in those conditions. And you, you've, you've heard the president and the vice president say directly, the border is not open, please don't come here, you'll no. be turned away. Doesn't seem like the migrants are buying that. I don't blame them. I, if, I, if I lived in their conditions, I'd want to do everything I could to get to America. We're gonna have to leave it there. We'll be back with more Rising after this. It looks like Nancy Pelosi is not done with politics. In fact, the former speaker just announced today that she is running for re-election. This is after the longtime California Congresswoman stepped down from Democratic leadership at the end of the last Congress. She wrote on X, formerly known as Twitter, now more than ever, our city needs us to advance San Francisco values and further our recovery. Our country needs America to show the world that our flag is still there with liberty and justice for all. That is why I'm running for re-election and respectfully ask for your vote, signed Nancy. Well, that's nice. San Francisco values, what are those? Like homeless people all big, over your streets? That's, that's big news, though. Yeah, it is big news. Very, She's 83 years old. Speakers rarely stay on. Um, after they're done with the speakership. After they're done with the speakership. So. That's very true. Um, so she's 83, Mitch McConnell's 81, Diane Feinstein, 90 years old, Joe Biden, 80. Oh, they're older than Joe Biden. Yeah, somewhat shockingly, um, <laughs> given some of the things we've seen from him. But uh -huh. nonetheless, <laughs> we have a little bit of a gerontocracy going on here. And I, I've seen over the past couple of years that, uh, you know, voters that I've spoken to um, and, and people who follow politics closely as well, people who are involved in the process, look at this and say, how on earth are these people still in office? Should we have age limits? Should we have term limits? Because the idea that our country is essentially run by a select handful of incredibly old people is kind of concerning. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to hear Republicans talk about, you know, uh, restrictions and, and limits on, um, you know, on jobs. But uh, well, I would just say <laughs> that we have term limits. They're called elections. Uh, we should put our faith in uh, the electorate. If you don't, then probably should get out of politics, but or not watch or participate in politics. But like that's how it's done. Uh, the states control elections, and um, the voters choose. The voters know what they're getting. I think the problem is treating voters like they're not smart enough to understand the person that they're voting for is old. Um, I, you know, I always thought about it actually as. You think about some of the, the people who were reelected to office um, after they've committed, like, sort of egregious mistakes in public. Like, let, let's—probably shouldn't take this example, but as a Democrat, but like Teddy Kennedy, you know, he—the people of Massachusetts had the opportunity to keep voting for him after um, what happened at Chappaquiddick. And at some point, you have to respect the will of the voters. Yeah, I definitely hear that. I actually somewhat agree with you in the sense that if there's someone who's doing a good job and their constituents like them and they feel like they've been representing their district or their yeah. state well, then they should have the opportunity to continue voting for them. But I also feel torn with this with this increasing average age of the Congress, especially when we look at 
back at the founding of our country and how young so many of those thinkers were, um, there's definitely something to be said for the benefit of having fresh ideas and fresh voices. Mm -hmm. um, we see that very frequently the younger members of both parties have very different tenors and very different ideologies sure. than the people who are in power. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there is just this... Um, grip on power that a lot of people refuse to get rid of yeah. and in the cases of people Nobody. like Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell they make a lot of money by being members of Congress. Well they don't make money being members of Congress. Oh sure they, they do. They, first of all they both have wealthy spouses. Let's, well, let's and, put it that and way. They, they, and they both are very good they, at reading the stock market they, too. They, they, both, they both married They're well. They're experts at it. They both married well. Nancy Pelosi's been in politics since she was uh, in her mother's womb. So uh, she was campaigning when she was three years old for her That's father. That's a good thing and, you didn't abort her. <laughs> uh, she's Catholic. They don't, she, you know, people but she's pro-choice. She is, as a public servant who serves not just Catholics, but all people, even people who don't believe in religion. So you can be a Catholic and go to church every Sunday or twice a week, like the current president, and um, still believe in for the right for women to be able to choose you what to do with their can't, own bodies. Uh, I mean, the Catholic catechism is very clear about the issue of abortion, and it so is So all the churches that Joe Biden goes to around the country, should they stop serving him in communion? Yes, they should. Okay. They absolutely should, because well, the, when the, you— The Catholic Church doesn't seem to have a problem with divorce anymore— or well, you're not allowed to get remarried any, in the church else. if you're divorced, so they do have a problem with that. And <laughs> the issue with taking communion if you're publicly supporting abortion is that by publicly supporting abortion, you're committing a mortal sin. I... And if you go and take communion, you are compounding that mortal sin on top of each other. So, yes, I believe anybody I, I who, think... who knows about Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi's positions on abortion uh, and allows them to receive communion, it is your duty as a priest to prevent uh, your parishioners from compounding that mortal sin, absolutely. I think we should keep religion as far away from government as everybody possible. Everybody approaches and governance. Everybody and approaches separate. governance with a moral ideology. That's fine. Just That's because fine. some people's is religious doesn't make it any less valuable uh, when or, you any, are president, or any less. You are president of everybody, not just Catholics and not just people of faith. Um, you're president of everybody. And if you start leaning on your faith, to make decisions, then we have a big problem. But if, if my moral clarity comes from my faith and somebody else's moral clarity comes from their atheism or whatever other worldview that they have, why is my moral you know, ideology any less valid towards informing my political positions than that person? It's not. <laughs> they're, all, they're equal. That's the point of having a president who's president of everybody. Um, and that's the point of making decisions not based on uh, personal ideology, personal belief. You make a decision on the best interest, the security uh, of your country and of the people that, that, that put you where you are, who are not monolithic. But the people vote for you based on your beliefs and based on what you based say Based on your public do. beliefs, based on what you're going to do for them. It has nothing to do with your religion. But if and your neither religion, should any law. But if your religion is informing you of what you think is best for people, then mm -hmm. you naturally can't separate out your personal morality with the positions that you take publicly well, that you think are for the good of the country or the people. I disagree, because what I might think is right for me is not right for you. So I'm not going to um, pass laws or vote for laws that I think 
don't benefit the 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 country as a whole, or I'm going to educate you as to why I think I'm I'm providing a service for the entire country, not just one group of people. This just doesn't it doesn't necessarily doesn't work though, because let's say, for example, that we all believe that murder is wrong. Somebody who wants to kill somebody is going to say, "No, no, no! Your law banning murder is not good for me." So why does it matter if you come to the decision that murder is wrong based on whatever moral framework you operate from? And mine comes from the Ten Commandments. Either way, we agree that murder is wrong, and just because some people disagree with us doesn't mean we're not going to pass laws about it because right. we want to be legislators for everybody. Government makes the law for everybody. The Ten Commandments might make up your personal moral compass, but they don't mean anything to a lot of other people. The so point this is, is how you arrive at a moral decision, whether it's from a religious framework or not, should not determine whether it's, or not that's va a valid way of, of well, deciding right policy. Right there is the age-old question that, and the long-argued um, uh, uh, division over this issue. Is it a is it a moral issue? Or is it a public issue? If it's a public issue, uh, then it affects everybody. If it's a personal issue, you can have your personal view. But when it comes to the role of government and, and enacting law, you are enacting law for everybody, not just one group. Your personal feelings may go into how you decide something. That's my point. May play exactly a role. My point. May play a role, but you are making decisions not just based on your own personal faith. You're making it based on um, the service you're providing uh, to the country. But if your personal faith tells you that abortion is murder, uh -huh. and then you turn around and you go in public and you say, but I permit some people to murder because I don't want to decide for them, that's hypocritical. Well, first of all, all right, this is going down an abortion rabbit hole. It is. <laughs> I don't know if we, <laughs> I don't know if we want to go there. Um, I don't know if any man should be telling any woman what to do with their bodies. I certainly don't want to. Um, I want women to, to to make that choice for themselves and their doctor. I really don't want government deciding that. Uh, so that's just me. I want government out of my bedroom. All right, and I want it away from my body. You're certainly free to hold that position. Thank you. So are you. Uh, anyway, Nancy Pelosi running for re-election. Good for her. She's good for, she's good for the Democratic Party. She's good for San Francisco. Oh boy. I'm happy she's staying around. More rising after this. The Biden administration has launched a new ad highlighting his visit to Ukraine earlier this year ahead of the G20 summit in India, taking place this week into next. It was the first time in modern history. Very significant moment on the world stage. That an American president went into a war zone not controlled by the United States. A nearly 40-hour journey in and out of Ukraine. President Biden left Washington, D.C. at 4 a.m. on Sunday. He landed in eastern Poland and then took a nine-and-a-half-hour train to Kyiv. He entered Ukraine under the cover of night. And in the morning, Joe Biden walked shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with our allies in the war-torn streets, standing up for democracy in a place where a tyrant is waging war to take it away. Air raid sirens blared as the two men walked together. In the middle of a war zone, Joe Biden showed the world what America is made of. That's the quiet strength of a true leader who doesn't back down to a dictator. Biden, president.
I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. The ad is set to air in battleground states this weekend during the 60 Minutes broadcast. Good ad? Bad ad? Somewhere in the middle? I thought it couldn't be better. I thought it was beautifully done. I think it uh, reminds people just how physically able he actually is. Because uh, he got on a plane? Uh, well, <laughs> And walked? Uh, in a war zone. Oh, in a war zone. In a war zone oh, that is not not controlled by <laughs> a green zone of military, U.S. military, uh, protecting and monitoring him. This is not our war. Um, the fact that he did, I, like, I would just like to brag that the first lady, we actually went to the war zone that wasn't ours first in a armored uh, caravan to cross the border into Ukraine to bring the first lady of Ukraine out of hiding, which was, was really, I wouldn't say I was scared, but like it did, it made the Secret Service and regional security very nervous. When you're going into a, a war zone that is not protected by uh, U.S. troops, uh, have no role there. There is no green zone, which is the safety and security that American troops provide when a president or first lady go um, into a war. But usually those war zones are, are our wars. This is not. Um, so it was a pretty big deal. But back to your point, the ad also, um, it really highlights a point of pride that the president has in how he and his, and his team um, were able to bring together the European uh, allies, our European allies, NATO, strengthen NATO, hold NATO together, and expand NATO, which is everything Putin did not want to happen. He was able to defy, not only defy Putin, but we beat him at his game. That's the reason why he invaded Ukraine in the first place, because he's so scared to death of NATO, and all he did was make NATO stronger. Hmm. Scared to death or emboldened, I wonder. But um, I'm a little flummoxed by <clears throat> the Biden campaign deciding to make this one of their first big mm -hmm. advertisements. Mm -hmm. um, we know that, according to polls, Americans are becoming less excited about the idea of sending additional U.S. aid to Ukraine. They generally don't want to be involved in another war. And even though the Afghanistan withdrawal under Biden was was handled pretty disastrously, there was a huge appetite for getting out of that 20-year conflict. So to start with this image of Biden walking through a war zone that most Americans don't want to be more involved with, I thought was a little odd. Well, the last poll I saw said 57 percent of Americans, uh, which came out of the, Raw, the Wall Street Journal conducted by the Ronald Reagan Institute, uh, said 57 percent of Americans actually support keeping um, Ukraine aid uh, uh, going to support the country, um, which I got to say, as a um, a as a student who was uh, in college during the start of the Iraq war and um, the Bush administration's uh, effort to democratize uh, the rest of the world and save democracy, it is fascinating to see how far the Republican Party has come from their really aggressive pro-democracy, anti-Russian, anti-communist views that they are all of a sudden questioning whether we should support democracy in the country that neighbors the former Soviet Union. 
How, where has the Republican Party of Reagan, who ended the Cold War, gone? Well, neoconservatism I mean, is... is dying or dead, and I think for good reason, because we <laughs> learned through the Iraq War <clears throat> that you cannot The Iraq fight... War that you created. Well, not me. Well, the George Republican Bush. Party. Well, Look, I, I'm not a spokesperson support, for the Republican Party, I first of all. I supported the war. I supported the war well, we went in. I think we learned very clearly that you cannot fight your way to democracy, and you can't force democracy upon a nation that's not interested in it. And so merely putting troops on the ground or spending money or sending weapons doesn't ensure democracy uh, across the world. That was a foolhardy idea, first of all. That's why neoconservatism is going out of fashion. But on a second point, I think people see that there's not a real uh, end goal here with the Ukraine-Russia war, and they want people to go to the negotiating table and, fi and figure something out. And there were, in fact, negotiations brought up by Russia months ago that were rejected by the United States government. They didn't want Ukraine to go to the table. And we've spoken to numerous uh, military, former military officials on this show that we've interviewed where they say, you know, this is not a matter of Ukraine just getting more money and they're going to win. There's not uh, a, a path to victory for them at this time. So why don't we prevent additional bloodshed? Why don't we save American dollars? And why don't we convince both sides to come to the table and try to find probably what's not going to be considered a just or perfect resolution, but something where both sides can be a little bit happy. Yeah, well, if you, if you give a mouse a cookie, what's the old rule? The mouse is going to want more. I think we learned that from World War II. I don't think we're about to ever let that happen again, especially to one of our friends and one of our um, allies, one, a country that we have actual commitments to, that we made, we made commitments to in the 90s. And America lives up to their deals and lives up to their promises. And we, we when, when the Ukraine broke away from, from Russia in the early 90s, we made deals with them that we were going to be there to protect them. And that's essentially what NATO is. And I hope at some point they do get to become a partner uh, and a member of NATO as they are, are about to become part of the EU. Um, but Maybe you're right. Maybe that uh, the administration hasn't done enough. And this was always going, once the Republicans took over uh, the House, this was always going to be an issue for the White House, was that they are going to, uh, it's unbelievable to me that we have to explain the importance of a democracy uh, succeeding in Europe. But nonetheless, apparently we have to. For some people who question why we're there, it should be obvious. I don't think we would question uh, whether or not we should be in Italy if, if uh, the Russians tried to invade Italy as well. So I think that it is up to the administration to uh, sell the message and to um, explain, explain to, I guess, people who don't understand um, what it would mean if the Russians were to, uh, if we were to just say, hey, go ahead, have it. Have the rest of Ukraine, have Kyiv, have Crimea, have it all. What's next? Finland? Well, and I don't think anyone's Finland? suggesting Norway? that, and I and I don't, I I don't like the underlying suggestion by a lot of people on the Democratic side that if you oppose sending more aid to Ukraine or you don't want to increase aid or, or increase U.S. support, that that means you're pro-Putin. I think it's more about being realistic. And the reality is we that— We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We're fine. We can do it. We well, can do everything we need but, to do and but, help our friends and allies and live up to our commitments. But we don't want an indefinite conflict either. We're and, not in an indefinite conflict. Well, then what's the end? 
somebody's going to have to come to the table, yeah? Because there's no realistic path to victory for Ukraine. This is a war between Ukraine and Russia. So why can't we, as their partner, as someone who's supporting Ukraine, as you said, Those efforts are happening. Like, there are diplomatic efforts happening. But they were shut shut down months ago. That's why Tony Blinken was just in uh, Kiev. There there are efforts happening, but you— you don't conduct diplomacy on TV. We're not necessarily privy to everything that is happening. Behind well, sure, the scenes. that's true. I just don't understand why, when this potential resolution was brought months ago, the U.S. said, "No, no, no, we're not going to do that," and instead continued to funnel money and weapons to one of the most notoriously corrupt countries in the world. Well, for, first of all, we're not funneling anything. We are, we are authorizing them. The Congress is authorizing the aid to our ally uh, to defend themselves. First of all, we know exactly. Uh, where the money is going. We don't, we know exactly. We don't. Just we, a few months we, there ago, account- there was an accounting. There, there, there was an accounting error exactly. of $10 billion. And, and by the way, those weapons, are, we know, we, those weapons are not going to waste. Not one bullet is going to waste. Okay. They're going to a Russian. And we know exactly where those weapons are um, because of technology and because of how well they are they are secured before they go over there. The administration has done a fantastic job in controlling the flow of our uh, our weapons to Ukraine and making sure they are getting into the right hands. And believe me, Ukraine won't waste one single bullet on a well, Russian. I'm, I'm glad to hear that a Pentagon accountant is going to go over to Ukraine and pull every single bullet out of a Russian and pick all the shell casings off the ground to make sure they were all used appropriately. That's good news to me. As long as the weapons are getting into the right hands, I'm fine with it. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. More rising after this. A new bombshell poll spells bad news for President Joe Biden. A CNN poll conducted between August 25th to August 31st shows a large percentage of voters are concerned about President Biden's age and data that showed most GOP primary candidates fared well in hypothetical matchups with Biden. The poll also found that 46 percent of registered voters said any Republican presidential nominee would be better than Biden in next year's election, and 49 percent said Biden's age was their biggest concern about him as a candidate in 2024. Here's CNN's Harry Enten breaking down the data. Let's watch. Within the margin of error, no clear leader. Donald Trump, 47 percent. Joe Biden, 46 percent. They're basically in a statistical tie. But what I will note was there was not a single poll conducted by CNN during the entire 2020 cycle in which Donald Trump got a higher share of the vote than Joe Biden did. So this is a vastly different picture from what we saw four years ago. That is some very interesting context in all of this. What it means, we will see. What do you think is going wrong? (laughs) Messaging not getting through. Americans feeling the squeeze of inflation. No, no Border struggles. (laughs) No question. Not... Not a good poll. Not a good poll. But look, presidents get their report cards every couple of weeks, every couple of days. Doesn't mean your report card, the grade on your report card is going to be the same a month from now or even especially a year from now. So what do you think he could do to turn it around? Well, what I would do, and love my colleagues, I think they're doing incredible work, and I think the president, I would would say the president uh, has had the most successful first-term presidency than any other president, probably since LBJ, in terms of the volume of accomplishments he's been able to push through with a small majority in Congress. Um, And he did it 
despite the noise coming from the left and the right on whether you could work with Republicans. And he, he, he told them they were wrong, that he could work with Republicans. That's how he got the nomination. Um, people thought he couldn't do it. He did it. And he's been able to pass uh, more than 300 bipartisan bills. And like I said, uh, he's accomplished more in one first term than most presidents do in two. That said, this is a 24-hour um, a news cycle. The media landscape is very different than it used to be. The country is clearly and will be probably divided for a very long time. Doesn't seem to be getting uh, any different. I think the poll reflects the divisions within the country that are probably not going to change. Um, that said, uh, I don't think uh, uh, voting is emotional. Voting is not a poll, right? Voting is a visceral reaction to two human beings. Um, and if it's Donald Trump and Joe Biden, those two human beings running together, the only thing we know, the only concrete evidence we have is that any time Donald Trump is running for office or in office or the topic of conversation, like he was in 2022 because of the candidates he chose, um, anytime he is center stage, he loses. Because for the last three elections in a row, independents have said, this guy's not for me. In 2020, I'm sorry, in 2018, in 2020, and again, in 2022, in a year when inflation was at a 40-year high, the country did not punish the sitting uh, party in power. Instead, uh, we actually won the Senate and had historic overperformance in the House. Uh, no president has done that in his first term since, I think, um, Harry Truman. Um, so. I don't think the economy is going to be a big indicator. I think it's going to be um, really what it comes down to is how you feel, how you relate, how um, their values align with yours when it comes to voting. I think if it was about the economy, uh, the Democrats would have done a lot worse in 2022. John Kerry would have won Ohio in, tw in 2004, but people don't really necessarily actually vote the economy, I'm convinced. That's my that's my own okay. theory. I would start with uh, your point about Biden getting a bunch of legislation passed. Uh -huh. I think the problem there I'm is, not saying you're going to like that you like everything. I know. Everything. <laughs> and my point in response is that I don't think Americans view passing a bill as an accomplishment. I'm not. Yes. Yeah. You're exactly right. <clears throat> Excuse you're, me. You're fine. Um, I Keep apologize. <laughs> I agree with you. And that's why I think a new strategy is needed. I, I right. do not think that legislative accomplishment, I think it's great supporting evidence that you are competent. I do not think that translate to voting behavior. Yeah, I mean, especially, I mean, from my perspective, when uh, you have what is essentially in many ways a uniparty in Congress, I mean, the vast majority of Republicans and the vast majority of Democrats kind of hold very similar positions on a lot right. of issues. Mm -hmm. And so uh, mm -hmm. bipartisanship for the American people is not always the best thing. 
Um, but that being said, I want to go back to your point about the 2022 midterms, because sure. I really don't think what happened there had much to do with Trump at all. A lot of the candidates that he chose actually performed quite well, um, whether that's Ted Budd in North Carolina, who kind of pulled a bit of an upset. A state that his... traditionally leans Republican. Well, not recently at all. Uh, it did in 2020 and it did in 2018. Um, on, the, on the state races, particularly in the Senate, there were massive predictions that the Democrats were going uh, to take There that were not seat. massive predictions, but there were, they, they did invest for sure. And they, Democrats will continue to invest in North Carolina because the president lost North Carolina by less than 1 percent. So it's, it's going to be a, uh, a natural place for us to try well, my, to pick up. My point, but. though, is that Trump's endorsement there did not hurt Ted Budd. It did not hurt J.D. Vance in Ohio. There were a lot of Trump-endorsed candidates that performed very, very well and actually outperformed except, their expectations. Except in the states that mattered most. The true lesson from the 2022 midterms were, were two things on behalf of the Republican Party that they did wrong. The first is that they took for granted that the economic issues, to your point, were going to sway voters in their direction, and they didn't really have to campaign beyond that. They really sort of lazed their way into the 2022 midterms, and they didn't develop a good ground game in some of these races, particularly the congressional races that they needed in order to convince voters to come out for them. And they didn't make a positive case about their vision for the country. The second issue that Republicans had was that they did not have a message on abortion. And they thought that the polls saying abortion was going to be a big issue after the overturning of Roe v. Wade um, were wrong. They didn't think that voters cared about that. They didn't think that that was a motivating issue. Motivating issue was the Kansas referendum not enough of a blinking red light for them? Again, I'm, I'm criticizing. Yeah, them. I'm saying. But one would have thought that. Oh, well, sure. They, I'm, first of all, you get what you wish for. Like you deserve what you wish for, right? And I, I've written quite a few pieces about the Republicans' failure heading into the 2022 midterms, and my point being to see that evidence that abortion was going to be a motivating factor for young voters and then not articulate your position on the issue and instead pretend that it didn't but exist what would was be the, idiotic. But what would be the alternative So there's a there's a blueprint to, in Virginia that Governor Glenn Youngkin has been pushing, which is a 15-year one, one of the few Republicans who won statewide who wanted nothing to do with Donald Trump. But go ahead. Well, he did accept an endorsement. Uh, I mean, he put him on a speakerphone for a town hall as his campaign event. But that's, go ahead. That's fine. I mean, Virginia, <laughs> as, as you're pointing out, Virginia is a different state than North Carolina. Uh -huh. That's a fair thing to say. But, as, but that's my point, is that in states like that, like a Nevada, like an Arizona, like a Georgia, like a Pennsylvania, like a Wisconsin, like a Michigan, why were they going to the extreme? to pick these candidates, and it's because the Republican Party didn't pick them. Donald Trump picked them. I agree. He made some, some boneheaded endorsements. But it I don't think he them. should have picked he, Dr. Oz in it, Pennsylvania. It cost them But allow me to finish my point on the Virginia question, mm -hmm. because Governor Youngkin has been very open about the fact that he supports a 15-week ban with exceptions for rape and incest. That is a position that is incredibly popular with most Americans. Most Americans agree that there should be limits on abortion. Mm -hmm. Most Americans do not agree mm -hmm. with a lot of Democrats' position that you should have abortion up until the ninth month of pregnancy. And Glenn Youngkin has been very open about that. And I just went down to Virginia Beach. I spoke to some delegates down there. He's prepping for his state uh, uh, delegate races and, and the state Senate races, pouring a lot of money into them, not as much as Democrats, but pouring a lot of money into them, historic fundraising levels for a governor. And those delegates and those candidates for the state Senate 
are also talking about abortion. And in order for Republicans to be successful in that issue, they have to make that comparison. They have to make that contrast. Here's where we are. We stand with the 60% of Americans who think that a 15-week restriction is completely reasonable and that the position of Kathy Tran and Ralph Northam is not. So this reminds me a little bit of um, 2012, when the Republicans tried to take away Obamacare. Um, because once the effects of the bill started to sink in, people don't usually like to have their rights taken away. And that's what's going to be hard for Republicans when it comes to the issue of abortion. It's because the message is so simple and easy for Democrats. It is, we want to keep your rights. They want to take them away. And it's the same thing with health care. Um, and there's, there's a—Americans don't like when their rights are taken away, and there's a, there is— is, proof and evidence that there becomes a, a backlash to that. Um, the other problem that they have, like we talked about, is you know, candidate quality. One of the things, um, and I think this is a good indicator for the presidential, despite how close the head-to-heads were in all of these states, the one thing that all of the Democratic candidates had in common was that their favorability slash likability numbers, even if the Republican candidate was ahead by one or two or um, even five, the, the Democratic candidates all had a higher favorability, likability, than the Republicans. And that's because elections come down to relatability. It's like, do I like this person? And it, it, it's hard to pull the lever for somebody or, or, or cast a ballot for somebody you just don't like. And Donald Trump is that kind of candidate. We, we, we have actual quantitative evidence that people, he doesn't sit well with the voters that determine elections. And we saw that, and there's, there's no excuse for Democrats to be so successful in a midterm election with a 40-year high in inflation. No excuse. I, I'm. I was shocked about how well the Democrats did in that midterm election. Yeah, there were a lot of reasons why the Republicans really, really failed to capture that environment, and ones I'm sure we'll get into in, a, in another segment. I would point out that the CNN poll also found that Biden's approval rating was only at 39 percent. Uh, so Ugh. it sounds like we not have moving. maybe two, uh, the rather, dial's not moving. two rather unlikable candidates the dogs perhaps aren't going eating. up against each other. Yeah, the dogs just aren't eating eating the dog food and I and that and that's I don't know was that his personal well, this is his, his, That's his, this performance. Is his approval rating. That's approval. I don't see a favorability rating here yeah. or a personal likability rating. And, but and look, based hard. on previous polls I've seen, that's pretty low as well. It's We're hard. out hard of time, to... but oh, we'll be back I'm sorry. rising after this. A new Vogue magazine story features White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre describing her as a bold color wearer and eyeshadow wearer, history maker, who has sharpened the technique of disarming the White House press corps with a smile and then laying out the facts. The article recounts her achievements in the position, including keeping her feelings in check when answering to issues like student debt relief and details how she preps for questions she may face in press briefings. The story also details Jean-Pierre's struggles with mental health when she was younger and how the now press secretary never saw herself working in politics. 
So I was uh, a little taken aback by how uh, slobbery, I guess you could say, this profile was, though it wouldn't be the first time for the Biden administration, as you know. Miss Jill, or Dr. Jill, I should say, had the Vogue cover um, in the first summer of the administration. We had a profile of uh, former press secretary Jen Psaki. Kamala. We had the cover of Kamala. Mm -hmm. um, that was pretty widely panned, by the way, because they did not uh, do a good job with the lighting and clothing choices on that one, in my opinion. But different, different side of the house. Oh, we were thrilled with ours. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, but uh, it's it strikes me as a bit odd that we have these four profiles, two covers in a row, and none under the former administration. What's going on with the fashion magazine industry? I don't know. Maybe it has to do with calling the press the enemy of the people. I'm not sure. <laughs> No, I don't know. I, 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 uh, I'm not sure the, um, are you, I guess what you're saying is there's a double standard in terms of Indeed. Vogue, specifically Vogue coverage. Sure, or any of the women's magazines. I mean, Melania was one of the most fashionable first ladies in modern history. Um, you had Kaylee McEnany, who dresses very similarly to Karine Jean-Pierre. They both apparently really like bright colors and bold eyeshadow and she was never mentioned by any of these magazines about her style or fawned over. I mean, it's I don't, bizarre. I, I don't know. I can't defend, like, how they book their guests. I think uh, women in high-profile, high-pressure positions are an obvious choice to profile. It makes sense as to why um, Jen and Kareem and uh, Dr. Biden and the vice president were chosen to profile. Um, but, you know, I, I agree with you, I think. Like, I would have liked to have seen a Melania uh, Vogue cover as well, especially because, as I learned, going through the Vogue process, that um, actually every first lady has had a Vogue cover since, like, Lou Hoover or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, and, you know, they reached out to us uh, early er, early in the summer, of, I'm sorry, in the summer of 2020, saying, you know, if you win, we want to do this, blah, 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 can we be your first cover? I, it sounded great. I mean, I guess every woman loves to be on be in Vogue, and we were thrilled with the piece that they, they did on Dr. B. Um, so I, I don't, I can't, I don't know. I don't have an answer. <laughs> uh, they, you will have to ask uh, one of Melania's um, uh, people, but, you know, look, I can only speak for Dr. Biden. Well, I don't even speak for her now. But what I would say, I can speak for my time there, is that like she engaged the press a lot. She she campaigned like an animal for her husband in 2019, in 2020, and she held a full time job. So it she engaged the press and asked for press attention because she was helping. She was very visible presence on the campaign trail. Melania was, took a different approach. I'm not saying that approach is bad or worse. I have no criticism of Melania Trump. I have a lot of respect for her. Um, but that maybe, maybe that played a role, her lack of interest in, in the press or um, defensiveness with the press. She did, she did a couple of interviews. I'm not saying she didn't do interviews. She did a couple. But, um, you know, Dr. B courted the press a lot. We needed it. We needed to have uh, that free media in, in places where it was hard to get in, like, Iowa and New Hampshire uh, when, when, you know, your candidate is down. 
So I think this illuminates a lot how a lot of the mainstream press works. I know that's they, the argument. They, I know. they trade on access, right? I mean, it, that's how it is. They uh, they get to talk to to Dr. Jill, and in return, she gets the Vogue cover. And that's how a lot of the White House press corps works too. They're really terrified of upsetting administrative officials or upsetting the president himself because they're afraid of they of them not getting to go into the background interviews and being pulled from the briefing I, um, for those events. I don't disagree with you. And I I know exactly what you're talking about. I <laughs> I first of all, I want to say as somebody who came from the media side and then went over to the other side, um, that's not that's not how I would ever conduct relationships with with the media. And I think that I found uh, my relationships with the media uh, because they, they, they came out of a trust and respect for the jobs that both of us have um, were good relationships. And I, I earned that trust and respect because I treated them like they had a job to do, not trying to block the job they had to do or trying to stonewall the job they had to do or trying to... Uh, punish them punitively for things that I, that I didn't like that they wrote. Um, that's not how to, that's not the best way to uh, engender good press coverage for your boss. Uh, the press shapes uh, public opinion. Um, and as we just saw in one of our segments, public opinion isn't doing very well in terms of, uh, for, for this president. So um, I, I hear you loud and clear. I know, I know you're right about that. And um, that's not the way I did business, but... Um, yeah, I appreciate that you operated with this attitude of mutual respect because I think, unfortunately, outside of the First Lady's office, the 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 presidential side of the uh -huh. admin has been very restrictive to yeah, press access. Yeah, and I think the difference between um, really good communications people, um, you're not going to be able to stop every bad story, but you are able to contribute in a way that brings your view, brings like your principal's view into the picture mm -hmm. in ways that it might might not get if you don't participate or if you're hostile or if you start from a position of a threat and treat the press as a threat and a hazard instead of an opportunity. And the best the best press people will work with the press to make the story accurate and honest and fair, um, even if it's going to be a bad one. Um, and, you know, I, I think Karina's done a good job of that behind the scenes, and, and Jen Psaki certainly did. Um, but uh, that's, that's just the way I did it. Yeah, and I, and I think it's fair to say, at least from my perspective, that there's a little bit of Democrat privilege that's inherent in that because so much of the press is liberal. I mean, something like 70 to 80 percent of members of the media um, vote Democrat or, or donate to Democratic candidates. So it might be a little bit easier to get your perspective in a story if the person that you're talking to uh, naturally agrees with or at least understands your perspective. Well, and but also I would say the converse of that is if you if you don't engage the press, even if you know, if, if I know Fox News is going to do a bad story on, on Jill Biden or um, the Daily Caller, I, I still want to contribute. I still want to make sure the piece is as accurate and as fair as possible. I still want to engage the reporter. If you leave a vacuum, the vacuum is just going to be filled yeah. by somebody and, else. And the Trump administration did engage with all of those reporters. Uh, too much, in my opinion. Um, but 
that's uh, I'm not obviously a campaign strategist or or a media official, but I wish we had more time to talk about the what the Vogue profile said about Corinne Jean Pierre. But no, it's okay. I mean, this we got off an, topic. It was an interesting discussion about how the media ecosystem actually operates, which I think maybe people who aren't enmeshed in it mm -hmm. don't fully understand. So I I, mm -hmm. I hope it was illuminating for everybody. That does it for us this week on Rising, actually. And, Michael, thank you so much for being here. It was great sitting at the desk with thank you. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Absolutely. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us.